Well, good morning again. Today is Palm Sunday. On this day, Christians have uh, traditionally remembered Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem amidst the shouts of praise and adoration uh, by those who had gathered to celebrate His coming. Uh, The symbolism of Jesus' entry is rich with um, the Old Testament's prophetic witness. We have there the palms and the garments that are spread. And through all of that, Jesus is clearly identifying Himself uh, with the long-awaited kingly Messiah of Israel. The, The subsequent events, of course, during that week, though, reveal that His vision of kingship and the people's vision of kingship could not have been more different. This passage from Philippians chapter 2, which is often read on Palm Sunday, provides us with the reason for these contradictory visions. Jesus is not merely a king. He was going to be a servant king. Now, we may say that we want a servant king, but in truth, we long for a conquering warrior king, right? And yet Jesus came to be the king that we needed, not necessarily the king that we wanted. So let's give our attention to God's Word as it comes to us in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let me invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would now bless the reading and proclamation of your holy word come upon me, my lips and my thoughts, that you might cause us all to believe all that you have promised, to do all that you have commanded, that our lives might join together in a glorious chorus of praise and worship and obedience unto you, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you haven't taken a seat, let me invite you to do so. During the Second World War, no battle was of greater consequence to Hitler than the Battle of Stalingrad. It was raged on the Eastern Front during the winter of 1942-1943, and most historians regard that battle as the major turning point in the Second World War. It was the battle from which Hitler's um, forces could never recover. It was a battle of epic proportion. No battle during the Second World War gathered more troops around it, and no battle suffered greater deaths among the Axis and uh, Soviet troops. Uh, historians put the number lost, combined losses, at something like two million soldiers. And by way of comparison, that's more than uh, four times as many uh, losses, combined losses that were incurred at D-Day. That so much was riding on that battle makes the reason for this battle, though all the stranger. Up to that point, Hitler had been driving across the the Russian steppes um, and just wreaking devastation. But prior to this battle, he chose to divide his armies up into two groups. One group was going to go south and take the oil-rich regions near the Caspian Sea called the Caucasus, and the other group, the northern part of the army, was going to 
um, go toward the city of Stalingrad along the Volga River and occupy that important city. What's interesting, though, is historians tell us there was no relevant reason for Hitler to take the city of Stalingrad. Victory there, precisely there, served no strategic importance. It did, however, serve um, the, the importance of Hitler's ego, right? Stalingrad was the city named for the Soviet Union's premier, Joseph Stalin, and Hitler believed that by defeating Stalin, he would utterly crush the spirit of the Russian people. And though it sounds astonishing, Hitler pursued Stalingrad for naming rights. It was another ancient general who once quipped that this one was named Julius Caesar. In war, events of importance are often the result of trivial causes. And here I think the shoe fits. Hitler needed Stalingrad for the most trivial of reasons, right? For his pride. Now, now I, I know that we recognize pride as a small thing, but events of importance are profoundly shaped by it. Jesus warns us against the danger of pride that fills our hearts, that desire to be first, that desire to be well-regarded, that desire to be seen by others. Such things, he warns us, are dangerous. What is more, it's easy for us to point our fingers at the dictators of history, be they Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or even the ego-driven public uh, politicians in our own day, their pride and its effects are undeniable. The, the trouble, though, is that we often overlook, well, our own hearts and the pride that dwells closer to home. Which brings us to our passage th- this morning. This is one of the most sublime passages in the whole of the Bible. Its theology is grandiose and absolutely fundamental. Uh, to our Trinitarian convictions. Here we're given a clear basis as to our conviction that Jesus Christ did in fact become God incarnate or God in the flesh. Yet the purpose of Paul's words here is not merely to provide clarity to such weighty theological tenets of our faith. No, that's not Paul's purpose. Rather, these words are written in the interest of our piety that they might serve our common discipleship in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we're given a profound example of humility that might push back against the pride that dwells so closely to our hearts, that we might follow our Savior. Now that that example of humility comes from the one whom we call our King, makes this passage all the more compelling. Because that's really the point, isn't it? Jesus was a different kind of king. Unlike the kings of history, Jesus didn't rule to get his way in this life. Rather, he gave his life away. Rather than destroying his enemies, Jesus' kingship was humble, even sacrificial. It was according to his humility, friends, that we have been saved. And wonder the Apostle Paul summons us to follow this king. And so in our time this morning, I want us to consider the humility that Jesus practiced that we might follow Him into that humility. And so let's just think for a moment about the pattern, the humility that Jesus provides for us. Paul writes that Jesus was in the form of God, and yet He did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing. 
Throughout history, much has been made to the interpretation of this specific passage, but essentially what Paul is saying is that the pattern of humility is um, revealed by what Jesus Christ willingly set aside. Think about it. Without question, this passage affirms that Jesus Christ was equal with God, and yet Jesus did not think that that was something to be regarded or important. It was not a thing to be held onto or that which should be used to his own advantage. One commentator put it this way, Jesus refused to make the selfish choice with respect to his divinity. Instead, he made himself nothing. Your translations might read that he emptied himself. And again, we don't have to sweat. What is Paul's meaning. He's not saying that Jesus emptied himself of his divinity or he laid his divinity aside when he took upon himself our humanity. No. What Paul is saying is that he emptied himself of those prerogatives essential or associated with that divinity. He did not lay claim to them or hold on to them as though they were deserving of worship. And so for that reason, I think the King James Version gets it especially right when it reads that he made himself of no reputation. And there it is, the pattern of humility to which we are summoned. Jesus is calling us to set aside those prerogatives or rights that we might feel that we are entitled to, that we might follow him and humility. Now, one thing we have to keep in mind, again, this is not a denial of ourselves or even of our humanity and the goodness of our humanity. Again, Jesus didn't lay aside his divinity, and so we are fearfully and wonderfully made, but what Paul is getting at is is that we're not to to, um, demand um, or lay claim to those privileges or prerogatives that, that we think that we deserve that we're not to lay claim to any and every privilege. This is the idea behind C.S. Lewis' definition of humility when he writes that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but rather it's thinking of yourself less. There it is, right? The pattern of humility. It's not about having negative thoughts about ourselves like, I'm so terrible or I'm not worth anything. No, it's about having selfless thoughts. Like, I can lay aside my agenda. I can let others have their way. I don't have to be the center of the attention. Of course, the big question, though, is why? For what reason did Jesus humble himself and willingly set aside his divine prerogatives? And it's that question that Christians throughout history have um, confessed together using the words of the Nicene Creed. It was for us. It was for our salvation that Jesus came down from heaven, right? The, Jesus' humility finds its purpose in our salvation. Look how Paul continues in verses 7 and 8, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Two ideas, I think, particularly come together to help us understand Jesus' humble purpose. First of all, Jesus became a servant. A few things are more profound than that. The second person of the Trinity, the the one who had always dwelled in unapproachable light and in perfect communion with God the Father and God the Spirit, this Jesus became a servant. He didn't come as a conquering 
king or a mighty warrior, but fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy. How did Jesus ride into Jerusalem? On a donkey. And even in those days, that was no royal or regal entry. But what does it communicate? It communicates that Jesus, the great Messiah, was also going to come as a humble servant. Yet what is more, this service was also an expression of obedience. So look at verse 8. There Paul writes that Jesus became a servant unto death, obedient to death, even death on a cross. Which is a reference not only to the cruel death that Jesus suffered at the hands of the Romans, but to the fact that Jesus' death was substitutionary, that his death was an atoning one. What he did, he did there for us. And that makes Jesus' death all the more profound and a purposeful demonstration of humility because he was our obedient servant. He, he was our obedient sermon, what he did, he did for us. He suffered what we deserved. So, so let's just think for a minute about what that means. What does Jesus' humility have to say to our world? In a world that says authenticity is found when we seek ourselves at all costs, being true to self at all costs, Jesus shows us a different path to authenticity, that of service and humble obedience to His heavenly Father that lays aside personal privilege. Now I wonder if you're asking yourself a question, is humble obedience, is humble service, is that really a sure path to authenticity or satisfaction? Is that really better than seeking self at all costs? That, that seems to be what Paul is saying here. In verses 9 through 11, because there we read, Therefore God has highly exalted and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here Paul shows us that Jesus' exaltation followed his humiliation. God lifted up the Lord Jesus Christ after Jesus allowed himself to be thrown and cast to the very bottom. Now, again, we have to be careful. Jesus' humility, his humble service, his obedient service, did not add to or improve upon his divinity, but it did usher him into the fullness of his messianic role and his kingship. You see, Jesus was crowned with the reign of his messiahship after his humble service. And friends, that's the, always the way that we experience the deep satisfaction of our labor and service. It's not when we become um, clamoring more after our own selves. We don't become more satisfied. We don't become a truer person the more we clamor after what we think that we deserve, the more that we demand our rights. It's when we give ourselves away. But right, this is also what Jesus said, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, if we go after our lives, we're going to lose our lives. And yet if we go after Christ in the kingdom, it's then that we find ourselves. There's something so deeply authentic about what Jesus is saying here, because Jesus didn't have to lift himself up, right? It was God. 
His heavenly Father who lifted Himself up and highly exalted Him. And again, at the same time, we don't become more fully ourselves. We don't experience that deepest of satisfaction the more we grasp for what we think that we deserve. Rather, the security of our identity and our deepest satisfaction is always found when we humbly serve and are obedient to our Heavenly Father. It's not by demanding more that we become more. No, it's when we serve. It's when we give ourselves to the One who has given Himself to us. Now, I know what you're thinking, that that's impossible, right? And indeed, it is impossible. If it's completely up to us, then you are completely right. There's no way in our own streak that we can humble ourselves in this way. The world says that's crazy, and our heart cries foul. That's why we need to pay attention to this tiny verse that I skipped over there in your Bible's verse 5, Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, I rarely comment on our translations uh, of the Greek New Testament because they're so good. But here the ESV does a masterful job with the Greek text because most of the translation interpret this passage in a strictly moralistic way. For example, the NIV reads, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. The NAS reads, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And yet this passage in the originals, it says nothing about the attitude or thoughts of the Lord Jesus Christ. Literally, it reads, think this among yourselves, who also in Christ Jesus. And that second clause is especially important because it's not about an example of Jesus Christ that we ought to follow but about a position in Jesus Christ that we as His disciples ought to claim. As those in Christ, we claim the heart attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in that position, we have the power for humility. Now, no doubt, verses 6 through 8 are calling us to humble service, its pattern and purpose, but it's verse 5 that shows us the power that is given to us in and through our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might exercise that humility. See, it's only when we're deeply and experientially united to the Lord Jesus Christ that we can begin to follow Jesus into humility. That's what Paul means. Have this attitude among yourselves, which is yours. That attitude is yours already in and through your union with the Lord Jesus Christ, which begs another important question. If Paul tells us that that every tongue is going to confess and every knee is going to bow at this this Messiah, at this servant king, has your knee bowed? Has your tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord? Please don't allow yourself to do anything else today before you have made sure of your answer to that question. Now, several years ago, two teenage boys in the Midwest were climbing on piles of dirt and sand that had been dredged up from the nearby river. And while the sand was still wet from the river's bottom, the the dredges, they would pile it up on the riverbanks in these enormous piles, and as the sun beat down on those piles, the, the sun would dry the exterior to a rigid, brittle crust. Inside, the water would drain away, 
and it would form these cavernous internal voids hidden underneath that brittle surface. And, and, and so if you stepped through that surface and landed in that sand, the sand would gather around you, making a very dangerous situation. That, that's exactly what happened to these two young boys that day in the Midwest. When they didn't return home at dinnertime, family and neighbors, they organized a search, and they found the younger brother after some time, and he was buried in one of those mounds all the way up to his shoulders, only his neck and his head protruding, and he was unconscious because of the sand that had pressed around his torso. So the searchers, upon finding him, began to dig frantically. And once they got the dirt from around his body to the, to the place of his waist, he roused to consciousness, and they immediately asked this young boy, "'Where's your brother?' To which he tragically replied, I'm standing on his shoulders. Now, I know I've shared that story with you before, and though tragic, it perfectly illustrates the profound and humble service of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. We are literally standing right on his shoulders. He's the one upon whom we stand. He is the one who suffered for us and was obedient for us, who has served us that we might have life and salvation. Thinking about that in this season of the coronavirus, the COVID-19 pandemic, Jesus was the one who was quarantined, right? It was the ultimate quarantine, suffering not just in his house, Right, but suffering at the hands of God's fearsome judgment, that He might turn away that wrath and bring us to Himself. And it's for this reason the Apostle Paul summons us to that example, right, that we may too follow Him into humble service. No, not that we might save others, but that we might give ourselves to others. That through our humility and through our obedience, we might give of ourselves, we might lay aside our agendas, that we might put others first. That we might seek others before we seek ourselves. Because this humility is what gives birth to profound consequence in this world and in this culture. Indeed, this is what our Savior has done for us. Let me invite you to pray with me now. We bow your head. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your dearly beloved Son, who is our Savior. We thank you for his humble service. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did not regard your regal glory as something to be held on to, but instead gave it up for us and for our salvation, that you went all the way to the depths of the cross. We pray that we might not only believe and trust in you, we might follow you with similar acts of humility, that we might give ourselves to those around us in this world. For it's for your glory and praise that we pray now, and in your name, amen.